My name's Ivan Shearer. I'm an Emeritus Professor of Law at the University of Sydney and a Professor of Law at the University of South Australia. I'm going to talk to you about extradition law. Now, I'm not going to try to cover the laws of different countries, uh, but I'm going to attempt to give you an overview of the subject, stressing the elements that are common to most extradition laws and most extradition treaties. Extradition is the name given to the formal surrender by one state of a person found within its territory or jurisdiction who is wanted for a crime committed in another state which requests his or her surrender for the purpose of trial or punishment. I say for trial or punishment since the person may either have been accused of an offence, in which case extradition is for the purpose of trial, or a person may already have been convicted and sentenced in the requesting state but has escaped, uh, in which case the extradition is for the purpose of exec uh, executing the sentence. It is a subject of great practical importance in the relations of states. In a globalised world, people move about freely and frequently. People on the move include criminals. Extradition is the means designed to ensure that criminals are not able to escape the consequences of their crimes merely by moving to another country. Extradition is an important means of cooperation between states in the suppression of crime to their mutual advantage. It involves formal cooperation and formal processes. It is distinct from deportation, which is a unilateral action by the deporting state alone, but it is often confused with extradition, especially by journalists. Although in ancient times, extradition was used to curry favor with states wanting the return of their political enemies, since the beginning of the modern institution of extradition from the late 18th century, extradition has been seen as strictly limited to the mutual surrender of common criminals, political offenders being exempt from extradition. Now, is extradition part of international law? Extradition is not part of international law in the sense that there is a general obligation of states deriving from customary law to respond to a request for extradition. However, the great majority of states are bound by a network of treaties, both bilateral and multilateral, giving rise to an obligation to extradite under the conditions stated in those treaties. So to that extent, extradition is part of international law. Some states have adopted national laws on extradition which permit surrender to be given even in the absence of a treaty obligation, but subject to the conditions laid down in those treaties. Um, extradition may involve the interpretation and application of a treaty or it may involve the interpretation of the national law of the requested state that implements the treaty or operates in the absence of a treaty obligation. In addition to extradition law, both international and national, 
Human rights law may also play an important part in the decision whether or not to extradite, depending on all the circumstances of the case. Regard must also be had to those multilateral conventions establishing international crimes, such as war crimes, aircraft hijacking and torture, that may have particular provisions requiring attention. Now, uh, first of all, I'll deal with treaty-based extradition. In seeking to determine, in a particular case, whether there is a binding arrangement for the mutual extradition of fugitive criminals, the treaty lists of the relevant states must be consulted. Most states now publish their treaty lists on the website of their foreign ministry. If no relevant treaty is found, inquiries must be made of the availability of non-treaty-based extradition under national laws. It should not be overlooked that extradition provisions are also to be found in the texts of certain multilateral conventions, such as the Geneva Conventions of 1949 on armed conflict and the Protocols of 1977, and in the various conventions defining international crimes, such as the Genocide Convention, the Torture Convention, and so on. At the regional level also, there are extradition arrangements, such as the European Convention on Extradition of 1957. Now, I want to distinguish, as I mentioned before, deportation from extradition. Deportation is distinct from extradition because deportation is a unilateral act by a state which does not require the cooperation of another state. States commonly deport aliens whose presence is deemed to be unwelcome for any reason. In theory, where a deported alien goes is of no concern to the deporting state. But in practice, it is often necessary to choose a particular destination for the deportee, since airlines in particular must be assured that the deportee will be accepted at that destination. Otherwise, they may have a permanent passenger on their hands. If the deportee has a criminal record, it may well be that the doors of other countries will be closed against him or her. The only state which is obliged under international law to open its doors is the national state of the deportee. So that is the destination most often directed by the deporting state. This raises a disputed question. What if the person concerned is wanted in relation to a crime committed in his or her own country? Should the state in whose territory the person is found await a formal extradition request to be followed by all the procedures laid down in the applicable treaty and legislation, or simply deport to that country? Extradition involving formal processes of identification and inquiry and consideration of the procedural and other rights can be a lengthy process. Deportation is usually a simpler procedure and there is a temptation to use it in place of extradition. 
The courts of some states have wrestled with this problem, which is termed disguised extradition. It would seem to be clear that if the deportee were to be sent to a state which has declared its interest in prosecuting for a crime other than the home state of the person, then resort to deportation in place of extradition would be regarded as an abuse of process. The deportee should be allowed to go to a destination of his or her own choice. Ideally, the proper processes of extradition should be used even where there is an identity between the requesting and the national state in order to ensure that the rights of the accused or convicted person are respected. But it has to be admitted that the temptation to avoid lengthy proceedings in such cases is considerable, where the person concerned is unwelcome in the deporting state for other reasons. Some courts have held that where an offender has been deported by a foreign state, thus sidestepping available procedures of extradition, the courts of the receiving state should refuse to exercise jurisdiction on the ground that to do so would be to an, uh, approve an abuse of process. But those courts have also held that where the receiving state was not a party to that procedure in the foreign state by requesting it or cooperating in it, then the court has valid jurisdiction to prosecute for the crime. This is sometimes called windfall jurisdiction. The same principles apply also where the wanted person has been brought into the jurisdiction by abduction, kidnapping. The Supreme Court of the United States seems to be alone in holding that abduction, even by government agents, does not deprive the courts of jurisdiction. That is the Alvarez-Machain decision. Now, I could turn to crimes of an international character and universal jurisdiction. From the mid-20th century, the international community has sought to criminalise certain forms of conduct that threatened its entire security. Building on the ancient concept of piracy as a crime against all nations and as carrying universality of jurisdiction, modern conventions have extended the notion of universality of jurisdiction to such crimes as genocide, war crimes, crimes against the safety of aircraft and, and torture. However, the modern version of universality of jurisdiction is stated to be out datory, out judicari. That means a state in which an offender against these laws is found has the obligation either to extradite to a state having jurisdiction over the offence uh, or to prosecute the offender itself. Whether a state has jurisdiction to prosecute an offender for such international offences as war crimes in the absence of the offender on its territory was discussed but not resolved by the International Court of Justice in the arrest warrant case between the Democratic Republic of the Congo and Belgium in 2002. A more recent development has been the establishment of the International Criminal Court which established the principle of complementarity of jurisdiction. While giving primacy of jurisdiction to the territorial or national state, 
the International Criminal Court may itself assert jurisdiction over the serious international crimes within its mandate and demand surrender of the accused to it where the national or territorial state is unwilling or unable genuinely to carry out the investigation or prosecution. Now all of these matters are beyond the scope of this lecture but need to be kept in mind as part of the wider picture. Now let me return to extradition as such, the normal processes of extradition, and discuss the basic elements that are common in the practice of uh, all states. First of all, the principle of dual criminality. Extradition may be requested only in respect of offences that are regarded as criminal by the laws of both the requesting and the requested states. This is called the principle of dual or double criminality. In some treaties, there is a list of such common crimes beginning with murder and including such crimes as rape, robbery, theft and fraud. In deciding whether a crime is common to the law of both states, it is not necessary to show that the criminal conduct alleged needs to have the same name under both laws. For example, the offence of causing death by dangerous driving in one state may be regarded as manslaughter in the other. The test applied by the courts of the requested state is whether the conduct alleged would, if it had been committed in that state, constitute an offence by whatever name in that state. It is unusual in modern extradition treaties to list all the offences to which the treaty applies since that catalogue would be an unduly lengthy one. Instead, it is stated that any offence will be regarded as an extraditable offence if the conduct alleged would constitute an offence under the laws of both states attracting a minimum penalty of imprisonment for a stated number of years. The purpose of extradition is to cover only serious offences and not minor infractions of the law such as parking regulations. Indeed, even more serious offences are often not pursued by the requesting state through the processes of extradition if the time and expense involved would seem incommensurate with the gravity of the offence. Now, the second common feature of extradition laws and practice is to exempt certain offences from the application of extradition. Extradition is not available in the case of offences that are known only to the law of the requesting state. For example, religious offences and consensual homosexual conduct. It is also not available for purely military offences such as desertion. Practice varies as to the inclusion of fiscal offences such as offences under taxation laws. The exemption of political offences derives from the earliest days of extradition and requires more detailed treatment. I shall deal with that shortly. Now next, the relationship between nationality and extradition. The laws of many states, 
and many extradition treaties exempt nationals of the requested state from extradition to another state. This may seem anomalous. It is certainly a substantial qualification of a general obligation of cooperation in the suppression of crime. In general, it is the states of the civil law tradition deriving their legal foundations from Roman law that forbid the extradition of their nationals. By contrast, states of the English common law tradition have no such constraint in extraditing their own nationals. The civil law countries have a strong attachment to the bond of nationality as requiring on the one side the loyalty of the citizen and on the other the responsibility of the state to protect its citizens from foreign authorities. The difference in attitude is reflected also in different conceptions of the basis of criminal jurisdiction. The civil law states, while acknowledging that in practice most crime is committed territorially, assert criminal jurisdiction over its citizens in respect even of crimes that they may commit abroad. This is recognised in international law as the nationality principle of jurisdiction. By contrast, the common law states, by reason of the peculiar historical evolution of the criminal law and court jurisdiction in England, in general regard crime as essentially territorial in character. Few crimes can be charged that have been committed extraterritorially under the laws of that tradition and all of these are relatively recent statutory inventions. Moreover, the view that the loyalty of a citizen should be man matched by a duty of the state to protect the citizen against assertions of jurisdiction by a foreign state, at least where such assertions are made in proper form, appears not to have taken root in British constitutional tradition and in the traditions of those countries that uh, owe their um, legal system to British colonisation. The result of this mismatch of traditions in relation to extradition has been a pragmatic compromise. Where an extradition treaty is made between a common law state and a civil law state, it is usually provided that each party shall be at liberty to refuse the extradition of its own nationals. But in that event, the requested state offers to prosecute its own national in its own courts for the crime requested, even though that has been committed in the territory of the requesting state. This type of provision maintains formal equality between the parties, but can in practice lead to a failure of justice. It can readily be uh, appreciated that a trial under such circumstances labours under considerable difficulty. The evidence prepared by the prosecution may be in a form that is unsuited to trial in the other country. The witnesses need to travel to the hearing, perhaps a long way. There are language difficulties as well as additional expense. All in all, it is a process unlikely to succeed. It might be concluded that it is surprising that the nationality exemption survives to the present day. However, it has been abandoned 
under the European Union Framework Decision of 2002 on the European Arrest Warrant and Surrender Provisions. It is to be hoped that the exemption will in due course be abandoned elsewhere as unnecessary, at least as between like-minded states bound by proven commitment to international norms of human rights. Now the next uh, common principle of uh, extradition law is called the principle of speciality. The principle of speciality is contained in all extradition treaties. This principle provides that where extradition has been granted for the offences specified in the surrender warrant, the requesting state may not proceed to charge the surrendered person with additional offences. The only exceptions allowed to this rule are firstly where the additional offences arise directly out of the conduct for which extradition was granted, for example substituting manslaughter for murder. And secondly, if the requested state gives its consent after extradition has taken place. The intention behind the principle is to ensure that extradition is not abused for purposes that would not have been approved by the requested state. In particular, it operates as an additional safeguard against extradition in respect of political offences. The next point relates to evidence of guilt in extradition. Another point of difference in practice between states of the common law and civil law traditions has been whether the requesting state is obliged to furnish any evidence of guilt along with the formal extradition documents, uh, specifying the identity of the alleged fugitive and the legal provisions applying to the alleged crime. The practice of states of the common law tradition has been to require the presentation of sworn witness statements raising a reasonable cause to believe that the wanted person has committed the crime alleged. This is usually described as a prima facie case and matches the procedure in common law jurisdictions where before a person is sent for trial before a higher court, a magistrate must first conclude that there is sufficient evidence to warrant a finding that, if uncontradicted at trial, the evidence would be sufficient to result in a conviction. This requirement is included even in the arrangements between countries of the British Commonwealth enjoying similar laws and institutions. By contrast with the, this accusatorial approach, Countries of the civil law tradition have a different approach to criminal trials based on an inquisitorial investigation by magistrates who decide whether the case should go forward to formal indictment and prosecution. The authorities of the civil law countries have faced difficulty in responding with the type of evidence required by the authorities of a requested common law state. The result of this mismatch has been a trend towards relaxation of the requirement of the presentation of evidence of guilt, at least as between states whose closeness of political ties and similarity of institutions 
is thought to warrant such a step. But it should be remembered that the civil law countries do not, in general, extradite their own citizens, except member states of the European Union under the European arrest warrant system that I mentioned just a few minutes ago. So extradition without any evidence of guilt can take place only in relation to foreign citizens. This raises an awkward question. Should the courts of the requested state be any less concerned with the seriousness of the allegations made against an alleged fugitive criminal where the person is not its own citizen? For countries of the common law tradition, where nationality is not always a bar to extradition, extradition to a foreign state in the absence of any evidence of guilt can be politically controversial. Consider, for example, the case of the WikiLeaks founder, Julian Assange, whose extradition from the United Kingdom was demanded by Sweden. While it is certainly true that it is not the function of the courts in the requested state in extradition proceedings to decide the guilt or innocence of the alleged fugitive criminal, the trend to abolish the requirement of the presentation of some degree of proof of the allegations may be argued to be unwise. It may well be the case that the standard of prima facie case of guilt is too high, but at least some showing of the strength of the case against the accused ought to be part of the extradition proceedings in order to allow the judicial authorities of the requested state to assess whether the extradition is warranted. In particular, it is easier to assess on the basis of such evidence whether the request for extradition is properly motivated, that it is not for a hidden purpose, and that the human rights of the alleged offender are given due protection. Presently in the United Kingdom, concerns regarding the ready availability of simplified and expedited forms of extradition under the system of the European arrest warrants introduced after the 9-11 attacks in New York City have been raised and are under study and review prompted only partly by the Assange case. Now turn to the question of extradition and the death penalty. Another example of a difference in laws between the state requesting extradition and the requested state can be that the prescribed penalty for the offence is the death penalty in the requesting state, but not in the requested state. The trend in modern extradition treaties is to prohibit extradition in those circumstances unless the requested state gives an undertaking that in the event of conviction, the death penalty will either not be imposed or, if imposed, will not be carried out. Even in the absence of such a clause in the applicable extradition treaty, it has been held by the United Nations Human Rights Committee that a state party to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights that has abolished the death penalty may not extradite to a state which has retained it unless assurances are received that the death penalty, if imposed, will not be carried out. 
Now, I return to the question of political offences that I've referred to briefly uh, previously. Political offences are universally excluded from the law and practice of international extradition. This category of offences includes not only so-called pure political offences, such as treason, sedition and crimes like defaming the state, but it includes also offences which are in the particular circumstances of a case to be regarded as political. For example, a charge of breaching publication laws in order to print material criticising the government of the requesting state should be regarded as political in nature. Or charges of illegal assembly, where the purpose was to protest against government policies. It is difficult to define all the circumstances in which a requested offence might be deemed to be political and thus as not extraditable. One useful method is, as proposed by the British courts, to look at the motives of the requesting state. Is the motive uh, to punish the offender for an ordinary offence in the ordinary manner before the ordinary courts? Or is it to punish the alleged offender for his or her political beliefs? A particular problem is raised by offences in the nature of terrorism. A typical terrorist offence is committed for a purely political motive. Thus, in principle, it should be regarded as non-extraditable. But terrorism, which has yet to be defined in detail by a United Nations Convention, in essence seeks to advance a cause or to intimidate governments and peoples by causing indiscriminate violence, such as by bombings in public places. Such actions are rightly condemned. Public opinion does not tolerate demonstrations of political violence against innocent civilians. As a consequence, the tendency in modern extradition treaties is to remove such crimes from the protection of the political offences exception. Now, I turn broadly to the relationship between human rights and extradition. The great majority of countries in the world are parties to the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights of 1966. Many are also parties to other similar instruments, such as the European, the Inter-American and the African Conventions and Charters. Even in the case of those states not bound by such instruments, they are bound by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights of 1948, which enshrines the most basic human rights. These instruments bind states to respect the enumerated rights. Although not specifically stated in those instruments, it follows logically that they are bound also not to deliver persons present in their territory to other states where those rights would not be protected. Now, these basic human rights include the, the prohibition against torture or cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment, the prohibition against slavery, the prohibition against imprisonment merely on the in, ground of inability to fulfil a contractual obligation, 
the right to a fair and public hearing by a competent, independent and impartial tribunal. The right to a fair trial, which has a number of particular aspects as set out in Article 14 of the Covenant. The prohibition against prosecution in respect of conduct which did not constitute an offence at the time of its commission. Freedom of thought, conscience and religion. Freedom of expression. Prohibition of discrimination on the base of race, colour, sex, language, religion, political or other opinion, national or social origin, property, birth or other status. It has been held by the competent organs of the United Nations Human Rights Treaty Bodies that extradition is to be prohibited to those states where those rights that I've mentioned and others are not respected. Now, um, we have to look at the competent authorities in extradition matters, looking at the procedures of uh, extradition. There is no universal practice to be observed in the designation of national authorities charged to receive and to respond to extradition requests. In the first instance, requests for extradition are presented through the diplomatic channel. The International Criminal Police Organization, Interpol, maintains a list of wanted fugitive criminals and may request a state in whose territory such a person is found to arrest and hold pending the receipt of a formal extradition request. Thereafter, the extradition procedure may be in the hands of the executive or judicial authorities of the requested state or a combination of both. Um, the um, judicial authorities should play a central role in order to ensure that the proper processes are observed and in particular to ensure that the fugitive's human rights are respected. The laws of most countries contain such safeguards. But a, an example in 2012 of confused processes is the, uh, is the extradition by Tunisia of the former Prime Minister of Libya to Libya. This was ordered by the Tunisian Prime Minister without the consent of the President, who claimed that a fair trial could not be presumed if the former Libyan Prime Minister were to be returned. This case highlights the need for the review of extradition processes by independent and impartial courts. Now, in addition to extradition, there are some other cooperative processes that states have devised to assist each other in the suppression of crime. Uh, these, uh, and time does not permit us to explore all of them. These include cooperation in the fields of money laundering, intelligence gathering regarding terrorism, and in people smuggling. Treaties of mutual cooperation in criminal matters extend to such matters as taking evidence in one country for use in another. These treaties may be multilateral, as in the cases of the European and Inter-American Conventions, or bilateral, some of which are modelled on the United Nations Model Convention. 
There is also a non-treaty scheme binding the Commonwealth of Nations, which was last amended in 1995. Although not regarded as a criminal matter, the issue of child abduction and avenues for securing the return of children wrongfully removed from a parent's custody are dealt with under the Hague Convention on the Civil Aspects of Child Abduction of the 25th of October 1980. Now to conclude. Although law and practice may differ between countries, the central feature of extradition is the formal cooperation of governments in combating crime by surrendering persons found in one state, wanted by another state, for conduct which is criminal under the laws of both states. There are numerous treaties and conventions, both bilateral and multilateral, which give shape to these processes. In addition to extradition law, the international law of human rights plays a significant role in strengthening the protections that should be afforded to fugitive criminals against the possibility of arbitrary punishment or unfair trial if returned to a state anxious to prosecute. Care must be taken to ensure that due process is also a feature of extradition law and practice. Extradition should not be regarded as a perfunctory exercise of state power, but as a process which demands respect and care. Thank you.